Welcome. I'm Jim Persley, president here at Hinge Health. And today we have an exciting new episode of Pain Points, our ongoing series where I'm joined by leaders, experts, and practitioners from industry, academia, to explore topics at the intersection of healthcare, technology, and innovation. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Greg Lehman. Uh, Greg is a physiotherapist, a chiropractor, an educator, and the founder of Movement Optimism. He's taught thousands of therapists in more than 25 different countries a science-based approach to the best practice strategies of rehabilitation. And in this week's episode, we're going to discuss the importance of understanding people in pain. Throughout this episode, you'll hear more about Hinge Health's State of MSK report for 2023, which was released today. This report uncovers the findings of the industry with our own unique research, as well as third-party data. If you'd like to download a copy, check out the link pinned at the top of the comments section. Greg, thank you from uh, thank you for joining us today from uh, from Toronto, Canada. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I know uh, our clinical team here at Hinge Health has been very fond of your work for quite a long time. Um, maybe we can just start by sharing some of your background and experience with our audience. Uh, well, you nailed it. I've been I've been involved with you know working with people in pain. I guess I never really think about this, but for at least 25 years now in a few different capacities as like an exercise scientist a long time ago. And then I did uh, a lot of research. Uh, I did a master's for a few years and then I went to chiropractic college, still did more research. And then I, I was in private practice. I still am in private practice, I guess, for this will be my, my 20th uh, year. And then in, in addition to the Cairo, about 14 years ago, I went back to school for physical uh, therapy training here. Uh, and now for the past 10 years, what I've been interested in is, is really knowledge translation. Like I've always liked to keep up to date on the literature and what the best evidence is to challenge myself. And what I enjoy doing now is really, uh, translating that knowledge to uh, other practitioners. And so I go around the world and it's great and teach courses. And with hinge, I get to have monthly or often more than that monthly meetings where, as clinicians, we just work together to try to like synthesize the new research and hopefully get better at, at what we do, which is always the challenge. So that that's that's me. It's <laughs> twenty five years right there. Both a scientist and an evangelist, and uh, I know like, <laughs> our, our our clinical team has really appreciated your perspective and your experiences you've brought to bear for us. I believe you're also an author uh, and uh, and currently um, run your own practice. Is that correct as well? Uh, yeah, I have a time. We say boutique. It's like I was just in San Francisco in the hotel and a young girl asked her mom, what's a boutique hotel? <laughs> I was like, this means it's it's tiny and might be a little dirty. Uh, so I, have, <laughs> I have a boutique uh, clinic, which is always my dream. I've worked in big clinics before downtown Toronto, but I always just wanted something really small, like a, just a big room with gym equipment. And and that's that's what I do now. We can go for walks or runs around my neighborhood with my patients. I've had patients on the trampoline. I have tumbling equipment, gymnastic stuff in the backyard. So uh, that that's my clinic now. And my my authorship is just every now and then I get asked. I used to be a researcher, so I'd have you know you have to publish papers. But uh, now I get asked to be like the fifth author of a paper, <laughs> which is you get your yeah. name published, yeah. but you don't really, you just get to say a few paragraphs maybe. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think now. about, uh, uh, I believe you run that boutique clinic uh, with your wife. I think about, we have a 
PT chiropractor here in the Western suburbs of Chicago that has uh, served our family. Uh, he he does it in conjunction with his wife, and they do an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, I've got some athletic children and a wife who's very active, and uh, we're in lots of need of their services. You know, the challenge is uh, is that um, with you know one in two adults experiencing pain in the, in the U.S., uh, uh, a very 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 small fraction get to see you know get to see Dr. Turner here uh, in the Western suburbs of Chicago. So. Um, maybe we can just start with that as, 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 you know, maybe as a segue to our discussion is I think about the scope of the problem uh, of pain. And, and I know you're up in Toronto. Um, a lot of the data uh, that, that, you know, that we'll share in the state of MSK report is, is more U.S. centric, but really it's a, it's a global problem of massive scale, almost 2 billion people around the globe living in MSK pain. But, you know, here in the U.S., it's, it's about one in two um, adults, and you know, we're ca- we're spending almost a trillion dollars, just south of a trillion dollars, in MSK uh, treatment and lost wages in the U.S. So, given the size of the problem, uh, you would think that we would we'd be in a little better shape around addressing it. But there's still this hugely underserved and untreated population. Maybe you can share a little bit about uh, who these people are that are in pain, and and why aren't they getting the care that they need today. I mean, yeah, that's, it's a huge question. Uh, who, who the people are, it's, I think one in two is just people who are actively in pain. I think the number is even higher if you look at it prevalence over a year, over a lifetime, where people have uh, low back pain, 80 to 90% of people. So uh, that, and then you have pain and disability. So the, the biggest issue, uh, speaking more on the Canadian lens, um, is access to care. That, that's the problem that we have. And then even because it, it is ex- expensive sometimes, even though treatments surprisingly can be straightforward and simple, it's still often uh, expensive to get the best care, depending on how it's delivered. Ideally, you want to deliver it in a more economical model. But um, the other issue, and this is more like, uh, I guess, a personal level that, that we see is even if someone might see, like often people will go the nuclear option first and they just will see medical doctors and go see surgeons, which is the most expensive uh, route. Uh, and that's who they think they need to see. They won't take advantage of the other healthcare professionals that probably should be their first line first with, to me, being a physio, I'm biased toward that, of course. But so you're not, not always seeing the triage isn't appropriate and you're not always seeing the right person at the right time who would be the most uh, cost effective and maybe help the most people. And then the, the other concern uh, is it, it's like anything, like when you're shopping for a mechanic, you, you don't always know if someone says, go see a physio or a physical therapist, you don't really know what you can get. So the, an issue sometimes with physical therapy is there can be a breadth of, of what people do, which is sometimes good, but often you have a number of people who aren't doing the best practice that we know, or, or, or you know, aren't consistent with evidence-based uh, guidelines. So often, if people can know what they're getting from their their physical therapist, I, I think that would you know help as well. But yeah, that's an so- issue. I think access is an issue uh, globally. It's certainly it's certainly an issue here in the U.S. as well, not just in Canada. Um, but you know, you, you made a comment that even if you have access, uh, whether it's affordability, whether it's just availability, uh, even if you can solve for the access challenge, there's still this prevalence of individuals being uh, being mistreated, um, and, yeah. and not necessarily by a, a, a physical therapist, but just mistreated more broadly speaking. Um, 
kind of what leads to this to this mistreatment? Um, what you know, what is it about pain that uh, that that makes it hard to treat appropriately? It, I, the the difficulty with pain often is we know that almost anything can influence pain. It's essentially it's 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 very multidimensional. Uh, so people will have difficulty, like they'll, they'll have one thing that might help one person. And that's what they kind of like spine manipulation or something like that. And they will help a lot of people with that. But they're kind of putting, you know, that square peg into a round hole where, where if you if I'm going to mix my metaphors, but if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail here. And, yep. and, and we know with pain, you, you should be looking more at the whole person and looking at other factors that can influence pain. And so often, people aren't getting help because they just keep doing, you know, the same thing over and over and they're not getting like the different types of care that, uh, that they would need. And that assumes that people are evidence-based. And then you just have a lot of different professions just doing things which are kind of questionable and that, you know, wouldn't be as up to date as they could be in helping as many people as they could. Yeah. Well, I think, I think people, whether they could articulate it uh, the way you just did, I think people feel that in our state of MSK report, we saw that over 50% of people were, were not satisfied with the, the quality of care that they were receiving for their pain. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of maybe misconceptions or myths around pain. I think this is something that you've uh, encountered over your career and have been working to dispel, like you said, through education and through evangelism, but you know, what are some of those common myths that you confront either with patients or with the, or with practitioners? Yeah, I, it's, I guess that's my, yeah, that, that's my big shtick for the past 20 years is, is there's so many negative and unhelpful beliefs about pain and injury out there. And I, I just, I had a patient with, I don't know, Monday or Thursday, whatever, it was just, just recently. And she has low back pain and hip pain. That's not uncommon. She's doing okay. Uh, she wants to be active and, and be fit again. She also has osteopenia. So she's on the way to osteoporosis and she saw a rheumatologist and I couldn't believe it. And he told her how, uh, hard walking was on the body, that it was high impact <laughs> and that she shouldn't be doing. And it scared the hell out of her that she shouldn't be doing that. That'd be bad for her back and her hips, which, which that that's one I haven't heard in a while. And that one's just mind blowing because when it comes to osteoporosis, not only is like, not, for, first, the problem with walking, that's great, will help a lot of people, it should be part of their health program. But for osteoporosis, it's actually not even really that helpful, because it's not high impact enough. Like th this is one of the like a, a huge belief that people don't realize often to get better, you need to challenge your system in some mm -hmm. way, you need to push a little bit. So to build bone density, you actually need heavy strength training or impact and hopping and things like that. Uh, where, so th that's, that's like a, a, just a most recent example that we often put messaging out there that is meant to be helpful. Uh, and that would actually lead to, you know, in this case, this patient avoiding some really healthy activities that would actually help her, her bone density and her low back pain and, and her hip pain. So that's, that's the problem with the false beliefs out there, but I, I can tell you yeah. more. Yeah. Well, so, so, so one myth there is that, uh, is that, you, you know, you have to kind of retreat, uh, physically, uh, when you yeah. get a diagnosis and that, that is not just, uh, false, but, but also, you know, potentially harmful, you know, what is yeah. another, uh, another, another myth that you encounter on a regular basis that, you know, makes you want to, you know, it, it gives you more gray hair in the beard. 
In, in that, yeah, that's common. In that theme, that in the knee osteoarthritis space, and there's so many great researchers really working on this, but there, there's this idea that knee OA is due to wear and tear, meaning that the structure of the knee changes, which is, which is, which is true, and sometimes that's associated with pain. Um, but just because the structure of the knee changes, and that's sometimes associated with pain, it doesn't mean that exercise and physical activity cause that wear and tear. Or, and, and it doesn't, and so people won't realize that being active still, strength training, exercise, jumping, hopping, skipping, walking, whatever the things you love doing in your life, playing pickleball, those might be uh, sore at the time when you do them, but in the long term, they're probably good for the knee. And you could even make the case that it would actually improve the, the, the structure of the knee. It, it, from the research that we see, it certainly won't cause more degeneration in the knee, which surprises people. I have a friend, uh, J.S. Lescoulier, which is a, he's a great running researcher and his, his area now is running and knee osteoarthritis. And people think, oh, if you run, it's going to ruin your knees. Or when you have pain when you're 60, it's because I ran when I was 20. And in fact, from the research that we have, it looks like it's almost the opposite, you know, that, that recreational runners, uh, they, they have healthier knees when they're older. So it's that, that, that load, on the joints isn't actually leading to more problems. If anything, you could, you could argue that load is a force uh, for good. And then, so once people realize that, that's like, that's, a, that's an educational issue. Once they realize that, then you can start making better decisions for your health. Yeah. You know, just hearing that, that, that last come out running here, I am, you know, somebody who, who, you know, eats, sleeps and breathes MSK every day. And, and I got to tell you, honestly, I probably uh, believe the myth of, you know, all the running I did in my 20s is why I'm going to have, you know, bad knees in my 60s. And I would have, uh, you know, I would have filled in that bubble on the standardized test. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, think about all those misconceptions. And um, is pickleball, by the way, sweeping Canada like it is no. in the U.S.? No, no, I was I was just trying to be American. <laughs> I had a patient yesterday who played tennis. I'm like, you can play pickleball. She's like, I would, but we don't have the courts here. Oh, we're having the opposite problem here. If you love tennis, you're getting your courts taken away from you and converted uh, rapidly. So, uh, tennis players are up in arms here in the U.S. <laughs> I heard, but it, don't you get four courts for the size of one? You get at least two. I don't know if you get okay. four, but you get, but, but there's definitely, there's definitely a scale in pickleball for sure. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, we were talking about, you know, there's both myths and pain, but pain is also, you know, complex. It's multifactorial and um, there are some feedback loops, you know, there's positive feedback loops, but also some negative feedback loops. And we see, we see things in fear and anxiety and depression, high correlations. Um, we see isolation. Um, how do these, feedback loops in your experience, how do they affect people? Um, and how can we, you know, how can we change, make positive change when they're experiencing this pain? So uh, a good example, that's, I don't use that term, but though I know what you're saying with the feedback loop, a good example is that when you mentioned uh, fear. So uh, often when we first hurt our back, uh, and you could even have a disc herniation, you get a pain down your leg, it's not unreasonable for a few weeks or a few months to back off. And, you know, avoid certain movements that hurt, avoid uh, bending your spine for a little bit that that's reasonable, you know, when something is, is first sore, but what the body does sometimes with people and, and we're not even sure why is that we fall into this stage of overprotection 
And then, and then we're told, oh, your spine is frail and it's weak and you have to stop doing the things you love and then you have to stop bending. So you, after like a year or two, you really haven't bent your spine in you, since, you know, before you had low back pain and you're afraid to bend your spine because someone has told you that bending is bad for the disc or something like that. And so that might've been, again, good advice at the start, but it's no longer helpful advice two years later. So now people get in this cycle of they're afraid to bend their spine. They bend their spine less. You know, they start getting more and more sensitized. Their pain starts to increase. They start doing less and less and less, you know, and then it increases their sensitivity because they're going to have to move their back at some point just to live. And because they're so sensitized to it and they haven't done it, it just keeps hurting them. So the difficult trick there, not even a trick, is we do something called exposure, like if you're afraid of something, you have to face that fear. So we often do that with people who are avoiding spine flexion or, or movements that are healthy, but they're afraid to do. They have to get comfortable doing them again. And oddly enough, it, it, it can be helpful for pain or certainly the disability associated with the pain and the fear and the anxiety. And start yeah. Getting your life back. That, that example you just gave kind of reminds me, I, in a previous life, I worked in global aging and fall, uh, fall risk, fall prevention is, is a, is a huge issue for seniors. It's usually, is oftentimes a, a kind of a precipitating event for other, uh, kind of downward, you know, health trajectories. But, but your point about the fear of falling creates behaviors that actually accelerate or increase the likelihood of falling. So, you know, as yeah. I become fearful of falling, I, I walk less, I spend less time being active. I'm, afraid, you know, uh, of falling. And so, uh, yeah, I do, I do a whole number of things that actually increase my odds of having a fall, which is, you know, ironic and, and, and sad, but, um, it, it, it sounds like that's not just in the space of, of, of seniors and falls. It, it, it's more broadly, I guess all of us can be victims of that. Oh yeah. That's actually a, a pain principle that often, you, you know, our, our strategies to avoid something, you know, increase the likelihood of it happening. Right. It, yeah. It, it, it's unfortunate. Yeah. You, you see yeah. it with knee OA with people who have ACL tears, they end up not bending their knee as much. And so they overprotect it. And so that's fine at the start. Like they don't use their knee as much. That's a, a good strategy initially. But then when they need that knee strength five years down the line, when they stumble or something like that, or they're playing a sport they're not used to, they're more likely to get injured. So it's yeah. just a consistent thing we do as humans. It's uh, really interesting. Um, one of the things that one of our, our newer offerings we launched last year was our women's pelvic health offering. Um, we think about uh, accessibility, you think about access uh, PTs with specific training in women's pelvic health. Uh, there's a real shortage here, I think, in the U.S. and abroad. Um, do some of these myths and, and um, uh, principles, do they also apply to the space of women's pelvic health? Uh, have you seen yeah, I, it's it's not an area of mine, and I often refer up, but I've helped a lot of people. Often, the the myth is related to the neo way, where people feel there's a sense of doom, you know, once they have a, a pregnancy, and then they could have some pelvic health issues with stress, urinary incontinence, and that, and they just think that oh, this is something that I just have to live with. And sometimes with persistent pain, that's not the worst uh, messaging, like accepting and like committing to like living your life and being happy and healthy again, that's okay sometimes. But on the other side of that with pelvic health issues, it's you're not always doomed, just like with neo a you're not always doomed to go and have that surgery. So with pelvic health issues, people don't realize 
that there's something that they can that they can do about it. And so soon after pregnancy, everyone seeing a pelvic health therapist sh should probably the, the the status quo. Like there yeah. are, there are things that you can do to to build up your tolerance to activities again. The body has this amazing ability to adapt. You just have to give it the right stress. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great principle and a reminder for us. Um, I know uh, I know you are a big believer in the power of education. It's one of your life uh, you know life missions. Um, you know, we get the question sometimes: Why are we doing a state of MSK report every year? And uh, we share that that passion on education. You know, Hinge Health. We're trying to address uh, a big gap in accessibility and quality uh, and affordability uh, by raising awareness and sparking more conversations about what we can collectively do better. Um, and with that in mind, you know, what what more can either providers and or individuals do uh, to better advocate for care for higher quality care? Oh. That's a good one. <laughs> like, so I always do it on the individual level. And, but I, I like right now, this, this is what I always teach anyway. Uh, we need good messages about the body and about recovery and about what, what pain is. So I, I'm a big believer in like, so harnessing social media for good, that it's okay to repeat the same things over and spread the message uh, as you can of this, like that, that we should, we can be a little bit more optimistic for pain. So that, that's how I take it. That that's what I always recommend that we like with the MSK report, like that, that would be a start. And then putting that into different digestible chunks, different mediums for as many people to read it as possible. Uh, you know, like just, I'm a bit of a socialist, where I think we, we, we do need to spread the word and have get people access as much access as we can to other, to, to the, 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 this type of messaging. Yeah. So just yeah. Spreading it. <laughs> well, thank you for helping to, uh, uh, to spread the word and for helping to push us, uh, to get, uh, to get better as we, uh, as we come to the end of our, our time this afternoon, uh, and, and look ahead to the future, any final thoughts as you think about the audience, uh, typically, we have a couple thousand people, you know, listening, uh, usually all over the globe. Um, anything that you want to make sure that the audience hears you know, from your perspective? Uh, I can speak more to like people who are in pain or might might be in pain, which is so many people. But that I think that the number one thing that people want to know is like one uh, pain sometimes is inevitable, and it's it's how we cope with it, and then you know. Uh, manage it and then that there, there is always hope and so like related to that is that the first thing we always want to do is like the pain has to make sense you know like you you want to work with someone that really tries to understand you uh and they know everything not everything they know a lot about you and your life and what the pain means to you and then they're able to really understand what's going on with your pain problem and then they explain to you with your help that somehow that the pain makes sense to you and what and once the pain starts to make sense and you understand what's going on then you can start making like better choices on how you can help yourself but fundamentally that's it you need to work with people that can tailor the approach to you and then that your pain makes sense and then you have options and that's that tr truly that's that's patient-centered care once you understand yeah. the person lay out options work together to achieve those goals uh Thanks, Greg. I think you 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 echo a, a principle here. Uh, you know, we have a couple of of things that we think about here at Hinge a lot. This concept of movement is medicine, but but another one is that pain is personal. And I think you 
you just illustrated that uh, that very well. So, you know, we covered um, uh, a good bit of ground here in about 20 minutes. Uh, uh, it's been a great conversation. I think, you know, what, just to recap a little bit here, uh, we talked about uh, one, uh, there's a lot of barriers to good care. Uh, not all practitioners are following evidence-based medicine, uh, aren't following uh, the latest science. Um, but, but there's also barriers in affordability, in accessibility, in availability. Um, and so uh, digital tools uh, combined with in-person care uh, are great ways to, to remove those barriers. Um, pain is personal and uh, sometimes it's mechanical, but oftentimes uh, it has elements of uh, a behavioral uh, psychosocial elements to it and really understanding uh, the, the complexities of pain uh, are really important if we're going to uh, if, if we're going to address it successfully, and and also these myths. Uh, it sounds like a lot of times we believe things that are hurting us that are actually staying in our way of getting better. Um, you know, the examples around the body is uh, a beautifully adapted uh, machine that can evolve when stressed the right way, and we're so afraid of stressing it that we actually hurt ourselves. Uh, for all you twenty year old runners out there, uh, keep running. Uh, you may have bad knees some days, but it won't be because you're running, at least according to Greg. So, uh, so get out there and, uh, and hit the road. Um, but, uh, but thank you, Greg. I really appreciate you taking uh, a lot of time uh, or time out of your busy schedule. I know you're traveling a ton. Uh, I think you're actually going to be heading to the airport here after we wrap up today. So thank you for, uh, for taking time with us. Uh, Greg Lehman, again, physiotherapist, chiropractor, educator, founder of Movement Optimism, global evangelist and, uh, and uh, a good friend uh, to us here at Hinchow. Thank you. Uh, to our audience, thank you for taking time of your day to join us either live or later today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pain Points. As a reminder, visit the link pinned in the comments section to download the full state of MSK report uh, and learn more about the research we've discussed today. And until next time, I'm your host, Jim Persley, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pain Points. Have a great day.